The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and a desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to your coaching, so there's always somebody available to answer your questions and to help you adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, the ITL Coaching and Performance website is itlcoaching.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at bluepineappletravel.com. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They are all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The agents at Blue Pineapple Travel love to help people plan their travel. Their goal is to match you with the trip that you want. Whether you're looking for relaxation or adventure, traveling solo or with a group inside the United States or outside the United States, they are there to match you to the trip for you. Blue Pineapple Travel will help you curate all the travel information out there to create the exact vacation that you want. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by SlayerX, www.slayerx.com. SlayerX is a sports nutrition company that makes products for athletes, team sports, and anyone that trains or works outdoors. SlayerX was founded by an endurance athlete and University of Georgia food scientist who was unhappy with the choices he was offered on course in long course triathlons. He started making his own mixes and now you can enjoy those same mixes. SlayerX offers differing levels of electrolytes in their hydration products and you can get them with or without calories. You can either take their online test at SlayerX.com or you can be tested in their laboratory to determine the exact amount of liquid and electrolytes that you need to be consuming while racing. In addition to hydration products, SlayerX offers fueling products like their product Diesel, which is available with or without the optimum level of caffeine that is scientifically proven to legal enhance performance while limiting GI upset and diuretic impact. If you're looking for alternative gel, try SlayerX's new Spark Plug, a Pop Rocks-like powder that combines the same electrolytes that are in their other products, encapsulated caffeine, and quickly absorbed carbohydrates. It comes in a plastic tube so it can be carried while running and it will work to enhance and fuel your alertness, general happiness, and performance. Remember, tell them that the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast sent you by using the coupon code PLEASANT2019 at checkout on the website and you'll get 10% off anything that you purchase there. That's SlayerX.com, PLEASANT2019. Test, don't guess with SlayerX. Thanks to all of our sponsors for helping us to bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slayer X. My name is George Darren. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. It's been a minute. It has. <laughs> we, we haven't put out a podcast this month. We, we've kind of been enjoying the holiday season and been a little bit overwhelmed with in a semester and... and being newly married and all that sort of thing. That's in Patrick's case, not mine. So uh, we appreciate you sticking with us, folks. But uh, happy end of the year. Happy holidays. Happy New Year if you're not listening to this until uh, until January 1st. So thanks for being with us. Patrick, congrats on getting to the end of another year. Not just another year, but end of another decade. Right on, man. Um, We haven't talked about it as much as like 1999, for example, but we are actually wrapping up the 20-teens. I'm not even sure what you call it. It's... 
Not like it's not yeah. like the 1900s. We had the 80s, the 90s, etc. And it was an easily, def- you know, there's a nice easy term for each decade. But we're wrapping it up. We're going on to 2020. Well, so and and, and you actually point out something worthwhile. So are we going to call the next? the next group of 10 years, because I'm going to get totally technical on you here. You realize that this is technically not the end of the decade. So, so decades are 10 year stretches and, and the new millennium started on in 2001. So 2001 to 2000 through the end of 2010, that's decade one, 2011 through 2020, that's decade two, but no, but, but nobody likes that. I'm just totally being pedantic here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> mathematically, you're correct. I would say like socially or functionally, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, like Look, we say like the 20s or the 30s all, or whatever. All, all normal um, people. I agree. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So um, yes, yes, indeed. But, but I have been thinking about that whenever anybody talks about the end of the decade here, but yes. So it does make me wonder though. So, so the next group of 20, 10 years, are we going to call that the 20s? Because for my entire life, whenever anybody has talked about something that happened during the 20s, they have been talking about the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Are we going to be calling the 2020s the 20s? We're going to call it the hashtag 20s. Uh, okay. So, we'll or say. something like that. Or you say that Bring now, in new social media You say that in 2019, you know, we'll look back <laughs> in 2029, be recording another podcast and be like, oh, hashtags. Yeah. So played out. Right. So 2019. So uh-huh. we'll see. But anyway, one way or another, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, Patrick and I are doing a year-end podcast here. And in fact, this is going to be just one of two year-end wrap-ups. Um, so Patrick and I are going to do a little wrap-up here. And then I'm going to get together with Michelle and we're going to do like episode two of wrap up here and so uh big exciting year lots of things to talk about of course and so uh so so it merits two different episodes uh and that's i'm excited about each one of them um patrick big year for you tell us the uh tell us the highlights of your personal year here well i've personal got, and running year and yeah well, i actually got married this year but right i would say in terms of highlights running wise it was a, another year of being um a road runner mm-hmm. and just as importantly i was thinking about this decade the the 20 you know, 10 to 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the decade of me being a road runner. The, the decade before that, I was a competitive high school and collegiate runner. Mm-hmm. Ran my last collegiate race, uh, November of 2009. So it kind of mm-hmm. was perfectly aligned with yeah. um, the kind of the start of the new decade or the ending of that decade. Right. And so now this one, I've been focused on marathons instead of 5Ks. Right on, right on. It's also the decade that you sort of not only became a road runner, but also became a runner again, because the first part of the mm-hmm. decade, you had quit running, right? That's exactly right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I took about four years off or three years off um, mm-hmm. before coming back to it, and then have kind of steadily got back into it, and so that, you know, by the time it was 2015, 2016, I wasn't just sipping the Kool-Aid, so to speak. I was chugging <laughs> it all the way. Um, so so it's, it's been a fun journey, kind of. Absolutely. Know, Absolutely. Very good. So the last decade would be the decade in which I would say, okay, I I threw myself back into endurance sports. Mm -hmm. So because for me, I so I got married in 2007. And then that same year, essentially, and it wasn't a coincidence, my my uh, my new wife uh, encouraged me to, to start running and, and getting back in shape and all that sort of thing. Not because she thought that I needed it, mind you, uh, but because uh, <laughs> because she she could tell that there was something that was missing. And I, I would speak forlornly about my glory days and that sort of thing. And so she encouraged me to, to try multi-sport. And then I did. And then I started became a cyclist for a while, then went to triathlon and, and then came back to running around my 40th birthday here. But anyway, um, and so... Yeah, this is this was a interesting decade for me in terms of mm-hmm. 
you know, started off as a, as a cyclist, then became a multi-sport athlete, and then went back to being a runner for the back half of the decade, um, and and now kind of working on all these big, huge marathons, you know, which is fun. Yeah, and you, you bring up a good point, but there, there are a few things. Um, one, I feel like most people who ran in high school and college, and who would, it really was a big part of their identity mm-hmm. you know, as, as they came of age, I think all of us have at least one moment similar to that once a runner opening chapter mm-hmm. where you've walked away from the sport yeah. and then you get the itch again and you're yeah. like i really miss this this was more than just a hobby this was more than just something i do the same way you watch the office every thursday yeah. night it I was agree. something that was really a core part of your identity and you almost have to lose it you almost have to step away i think from that competitive side l- realize what you're longing for and then come back. And it's, it's really an interesting journey to, to come back because, A, you have to kind of reinvent yourself mm-hmm. because sure. you're not so much defined by your times. And you, you have the freedom to define yourself as a runner and as an athlete in a way that you didn't when you had to hit certain goals and hit certain times and almost perform the way that, you know, the coach or, you know, the, the authority figure kind of wanted you or needed you to perform mm-hmm. or act. For sure. No, I totally agree with you. The the I, I, I sort of look back on my twenties and on the one hand I'm like I'm like, wow, you know, what if I would have kept on running unbroken from the time I came mm-hmm. out of college and I was super fast and fit and young and strong and, and, and what if I would have kept on running then and not ever taken a break? Like what could I have possibly achieved? But then I kinda of look back on that and I'm like, well, you know, I had this long break throughout the course of my twenties. Uh, a couple of different long breaks throughout the course of my 20s. And it's like, well, I probably st- wouldn't still be a runner if I hadn't had that break. You need something to sort of sever the runner that you were from the runner that you kind of ultimately become, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and so so for me, that that was that was necessary. Um, so, yeah, we've talked about that a little bit before when we talked about sort of making those transitions from, from you know, in life and then kind of carrying running with you through those transitions. It can be difficult. Um yeah, it can be definitely be it, difficult. It's also true to look at how you know running and endurance sports can mean something different in the different stages of your life. Oh yeah. Um. So I just turned thirty-two. Um. So to me, this decade was almost like the decade of my twenties. Mm-hmm. Um. That you know, it's relatively closely aligned. And when I think about what running means meant to me in my twenties versus what it meant to me in my teens versus what I think it will continue to mean to me in my thirties, forties, etc., mm-hmm. it's interesting to see that progression. Yeah. Right. And and there there are a few things um, where it changes. One, you know, when you're first starting out as a runner, it's very, very imperative that, like, you hit all your mileage and all your workouts in a way that maybe it's not so much um, or it doesn't have quite the same sense of urgency when you have 10 years worth of running backlog, right? And you really built up an aerobic base over thousands and thousands of miles of running um, over a decade, two decades, et cetera. So from a physiological perspective, it's kind of interesting to see um, that progression and kind of have that that change in mindset, and then just mentally and emotionally, you you know, as you mature, you start to, you know, define yourself, you know, in, in different ways mm-hmm. than, you know, maybe your time or, or, you know, kind of less more mature areas than you would when you're younger. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And and we'll we'll have a longer podcast on some other occasion here when we're not just sort of waxing philosophical over the last decade uh, and talk about the way that things change when you get into your 40s. Um, because things have changed. My, my attitude has changed a great deal over, over the course of, of the last just five or six years um, that I'm, I'm in some ways trying to hang on, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't mean that in sort of a pathetic way. Um, <laughs> but 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 I do mean that, that there's a degree to which, you know, um, I'm just kind of 
kind of holding it together and doing what I can, you know, um, and, and recognizing that, that my, my days of PRing, even though I PR the marathon this year, uh, my days of PRing are probably behind me, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I finish a 5K race, and somebody says, is that a PR? No, it's about two minutes or so slower than my PR, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's perfectly fine, but I still think it was a really good race, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, all right, so. Um, but you know where running's probably changed the most this decade? Tell me. When I really think for, about, for like. For you or generally? Both. Okay. GPS watches oh, yeah. and Strava. Yeah. Well, so nice segue <laughs> uh-huh. um, since the thing that Patrick and I decided we were going to use as an entry point to talking about this year is actually the Strava annual report. So Strava every year in early December or every year the last few years, 2017, 2018, I think going back to maybe 2015, uh, put a, has put out an annual report where they talk about the past year of data on Strava. Mm-hmm. Now, as you mentioned right before we started here, they go from October to September. Is that the data set? Uh, yeah, so it's October. So like the, the data set we got for this quote unquote 2019 is October 1st, 2018 to September 30th. 2019. Okay, right. And then yeah. they and so they take a couple of months to kind of crunch the data. Correct. Um, and so so when we talk about like the year in review for Strava, don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, that means, you know, um, from January 1st to December 31st. Um, right. It's December 26th right now as we're recording. So, you know, obviously they don't even have all the data here. But, um, but they put out their Strava, the, their annual report, and um, the numbers themselves are just interesting. Um, so during that stretch of time, Strava athletes uploaded more than 822 million activities, um, and that collectively covered more than 8 billion, with a B, miles. Um, runners did 1.3 billion miles. Uh, 248.3 million of those were in the United States. The average run for a Strava user in the United States was four miles long, and it took them 37 minutes and 34 seconds. <laughs> All right. So, so just a little sense. bit over nine-minute pace, yeah. Yeah. Um, so very good. Uh, cyclists covered more than 5.6 billion miles in uh, 2019 in that data set period. Um, that's far enough to get to Mars and back 82 times. Wow. <laughs> 82 times. You know, just on a bike, um, knocking it out here and uploading it to Strava. Now, of course, not everybody who does endurance athletics is on Strava. Of course not, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, a lot of folks are. Um, and uh, and so this is a, a massive amount of data here. Um, what were your numbers? Because they, they actually, in addition to, to sending the, the overall year in review, they also say, here's your year in review. So what, what, what was your year in review numbers? Yeah, so I came out to be at about 1,800 miles. Um, well, actually, let me back up and say right now I'm looking at the one that actually counts Jan 1. to. Or let me just back up and say, right now I came out to be about 1,950 miles or so for the mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Um, had about 200 activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to be shocked to hear this, but my most common activity was running <laughs> and not cycling or swimming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I averaged... Uh, about five, right at about five runs per week, which is exactly what we thought I would, it, you know, based on my, you know, last year we did our goal setting podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those are kind of my big takeaways. Right and on. the real kind of key is, you know, my mileage stayed about the same as what it's been over the last few years. And so when you kind of backtrack, not only do I have those 1950 miles on my leg, in my legs, but I have, mm-hmm you know, several thousand more based on previous years. Right on, right on. Um, So I like hearing what you did. Alas, my Strava year in review, like I looked at it and was fascinated by it and then promptly lost it. (laughs) 
Like, I can't find a link to it. And I spent way too much time before we started recording today, like, looking around for it. I did run a little bit more than I thought I did. I did about 1,600 miles worth of running. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did more activities than you did, but that's because I think I cross-trained more. And yep. I also tend to separate, like, warm-up and, and workout and cool-down into separate activities and that sort of thing, too. Um, but, yeah, my number one was actually also running. Which I was, I was, it sounds strange for a runner to say he was happy to see that running was his number one, but I always am because I cross trained so much. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, my, my, my number one was running as well, which I was obviously very glad. <laughs> well, it to shows say. that you're not getting hurt. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when um, you're hurt is when you're swimming more and, and cycling more. True, true. Now, I do have more miles on the bike, as you would expect, just because yes. my average speed is higher on the bike. So, uh, a little bit over 3,000 miles on the bike. Um, but, um, but, but yeah, right around 1,500 miles on the run. Um, and uh, several races, of course, along the way to show for it, too. Um, we should also here at the outset here mention some some kind of t- quick Strava disclaimers, um, because even though we're going to be spending all of our time here talking about uh, the Strava year in sport review here, um, we want to make sure that... that um, you don't get the impression that we're just, you know, Strava disciples. Um, we're both Strava users, but but we see that there's some weaknesses in the platform. Um, one of them is to say um, that it's not scientific data. Um, we talked on, re- on on this podcast on several occasions about research and, and published research and that sort of thing. Um, Strava data, when they're compiling all their data, it's not... It's not scientific data. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, you know, satellite data that users are simply uploading. But it's not as if um, they are they are crunching the numbers and doing statistical analysis in the way that would be required for publishing in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, and so we recognize that. That's important to keep in mind. What else? Uh, a few of the things. One, they do have to smooth out the data. Mm-hmm. So a lot of folks probably notice um, a few that. Th- 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 that manifests itself in a few different ways. One, if you run around a track, it doesn't always come out to be a quarter mile mm-hmm. when you do laps around the track, just mm-hmm. because they're trying to kind of, they're collecting data over and over again as it, the feed goes back and forth between you're watching the satellite, um, and then when it goes to Strava, they're trying to kind of produce, I shouldn't say round numbers, mm-hmm. but like they are trying to kind of average everything out mm-hmm. and, and provide you a, a smooth presentation, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing is, uh, obviously, if you're in a spot with poor satellite reception or, or poor GPS reception, um, like at Kennesaw Mountain where we do our Sunday morning long runs, you can a lot of times lose credit for a lot of mileage that you're yeah. doing. Yeah. So just to give you an example, we do our two-hour long run. I mean, it usually takes us between about two and two hours and five minutes or so. Yeah. And it's it always has us to be at about 16.05 or 16.1 miles. But whenever we... But mine always has 15.8. <laughs> exactly exactly um that that only adds to my point and then i would say too there have been a few times where we'll finish that loop and we'll decide to go to 220 mm-hmm. so we'll run on the road and all of a sudden the the road the mileage we do on the road is generally a little more than a minute a mile faster mm-hmm. which just goes to show that when we're kind of off in the woods it doesn't always um pick up quite as well or it doesn't have quite the same accuracy for sure for sure yeah on cloudy days um and you know, it varies based on gps watches um it varies based on on the, the the leaf cover the cloud cover all that sort of thing um uh the the more turns there are on a trail mm-hmm. the more off it's going to be because yep. because your gps watch and uh, and your gps signal will, will cut a lot of those turns frankly um and so so yeah it's 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 not perfect. Um, I also always want to say when it comes to, to Strava that you have to be fe- uh, uh, mindful of FOMO, 
Um, you have to be really, really mindful of, of looking at what other people do and then saying, oh, that's what I'm going to do now too. Um, mm-hmm. you, you always need to make sure you're sticking to your training plan and doing what's right for you on a particular day. If there is an athlete that you know or appreciate, um, whether it's you know a local guy that you, that you like, whether it's a coach that you know, or whether it's a pro that you follow on Strava, and you see that they do something, you shouldn't necessarily go out and do it the next day thinking that you're then going to be able to perform like they are. Um, that's, that's not always the right thing to do. Um, you should always stick to your, to your plan. Um, when Strava first came out with their, with their process of having like uh, KOMs and, and CRs and things like that, where over a measured distance, they, they would tell who was the fastest that had ever gone over that measured distance or over that measured segment of, of space. Um, over that path, that I think caused a lot of problems with a lot of athletes that I coached because they would get out onto a loop that they knew was going to be on Strava and they knew it was going to be uploaded to Strava and they would people would see how fast they had run and they were going over all these segments and they wanted to have you know new PRs on those segments and they'd end up turning their easy runs into fart licks at best um, and hard runs and races at worst. Um, and so, so you always do have to be mindful of that when it comes to Strava as well. So I yeah I actually have a a story on that one. So I saw that there was a, a KOM for the loop around Stone Mountain, mm-hmm. and I ran around Stone Mountain um, in high school. That was like one of our big you mm-hmm. know play you know spots for running and doing our fast runs, long runs, tempo runs, etc. And I saw the, the like leaderboard, and I was like, oh, I can crush this. <laughs> did, I, did I ever tell you this story? <laughs> so I was I don't like, know if you've told it to me, but I have a feeling I know where it's going. Yeah. So I was like, all right. I'm, I'm going to like, I know this isn't the right thing to do, but I'm going to set aside a day towards the end of a training block. And I know it's going to be essentially a five mile race. And I'm going to just kind of, this will be my one like almost guilty pleasure, if that makes sense. Which by the way, is the way you should do it. <laughs> if, if, if you're going to be like, if, and I used to do this with athletes that I would coach. If you're going to be like, all right, I'm going to go out there and take this segment. You, sh- you should build it into your plan. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You shouldn't just be like, oh, on this random run at Stone Mountain and be like, oh, wait a second, I'm feeling good today. Even though I did a workout yesterday, I have a race tomorrow, I'm going to go out and, and try and get this CR today. That's the wrong way to do it. So the right way to do it is the way that you're approaching it, but I'm still interested to hear where the story goes. So I was like, I'm going to do it right, so I'm going to make sure I get this segment. So I started a quarter mile before the yeah. like the start of the segment to make sure it caught me on time, and I even ran a quarter mile past. And I know... So I like I parked my car in the right spots. I warmed up appropriately, and I crushed it. I mean, I did fantastic. I beat it by like a minute and a half. I was so proud of myself. I was driving home, and then it didn't give it to me. <laughs> I have no idea why, but it didn't. And I was it was the worst part was I was so mad about it. It's probably because like your GPS cut a corner or something. So, yeah, who knows why? And then I went to like. <laughs> complained to, to my wife about it and she I swear she just looked at me like how old are you dude like <laughs> <laughs> oh this was recent and I was like um you said you so complained anyways, to your wife about it this was recent well, I guess then fiance but oh, okay you know the still point recent. is it it is a, a, still a bit of an approximation who knows why I, I didn't get that particular one um and then even more so I was like all right am I really gonna be angry about a make-believe list so to speak right um but all that to say it is fun we're adding these caveats because it's good to just kind of, you know, keep things in perspective. But I should also say, you know, us kind of outlining these kind of caveats or things to keep in mind, it, it is a little bit like complaining about Wi-Fi being slow on an airplane. Overall, Strava has completely enhanced the endurance athlete 
um, community. It's really allowed us to provide positive feedback to one another, to be able to track our runs in a way we couldn't before, and to kind of have you know, a, a really nice data set that unless you were super, super detail-oriented and, and you know, creating large spreadsheets before, we just didn't have back yeah. when we were like running with a Timex yeah. and trying to guess how long each run was, yeah. for example. Totally. For the last several years, I whenever I go to a new place, I'll pull up Strava and I'll see, okay, where do people run in this place? Mm-hmm. Um, and and if I see a whole lot of people running this one particular place, I'm like, okay, that must mean the traffic's not bad there. That means mean that the trails are good, whatever it happens to be. And I know that's where people run, and so that's where I go run as well. Yeah, um, that's a great point. I, I did yeah. that recently on a trip to Phoenix here about two weeks ago. Right on. Very good, very good. All right, so let's talk about the Strava year-end report here. Um, they had four big takeaways, and so let's talk about their four big takeaways. Um, their first takeaway was the community keeps people active longer and motivates athletes to be their best. Um, and something that we've talked about before, we had an entire podcast episode about the efficacy of groups. Um, but to bolster that point, they said one in four activities in the United States is recorded with at least one other person. Um, most Strava users headed out around 6 a.m., but those who ran at 5 a.m. were more likely to be running with a group, 29%. Um, and nearly half of all bike rides were grouped, 49%. Um, and group rides covered twice the distance of slow or solo rides. Um, the average group ride was something like 13 miles, and the average solo ride was something like 6 miles. Um, so, yeah. So people end up going farther. They end up uh, getting up earlier, um, and they end up... Um, uh, sticking more to to um, their goals if they're going with groups. What do you think about that? I would say it um, it matches a lot of the things that we say. I mean, that's one of our big pillars of ITLs that we're faster together than we are solo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not because you know we're necessarily going to be you know have run our fastest 400 with you know together, but it be, it means that every Thursday morning, every Tuesday morning when we have our track workouts, you know we're more likely to be there because. You know, it's easy to let yourself down, but it's a lot harder to let others down. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, you know, you asked about my Strava report, for example, um, and and one of the, the key findings was that the two days where I was most consistent with my running were Tuesday and Sunday. Hmm. Shockingly, Tuesday and Sunday right. are the days that we have our track workouts and our long runs. Yeah. Um, so you can see that even for someone like me, who's a very experienced with running and, and really loves the sport and feels like I'm pretty consistent. It always helps to have other people there to keep that cons- to really kind of help you continue to, you know, get in those extra runs um, day in and day out. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I always say that like a, a good training partner is one who'll just kind of be there. <laughs> you know, I mean, particularly when it comes to first thing in the morning, which is you know one thing they talk about here um, that that people tend to get up earlier and get out there at five a.m. when they're when they're going to be with a group there. Um, that that. Uh, having someone that you know is going to be there just kind of takes to me the mental element out of it. Like you're just getting up and you're going to meet people. And to me, that's always a lot easier to, to mentally get up to do than it is to say, I'm, I'm getting up to go put in this effort. Yeah, that's um, a great point. Like it almost, as you put it, it almost removes the decision point. Right. 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 If you have your alarm set for, you know, a 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. run by yourself, then you can always say, well, is this really the best thing for me? But if if you have determined or committed to meet somebody, then you're not the decision isn't is this best for me, which shockingly when the alarm goes off at five AM it's gonna be very hard to convince yourself this is best for me right now. Um 
But when you're going to meet someone, there almost is no decision. You're just trying to make it, you know, to that spot to meet them. And I love your point about how, you know, what makes a great training partner? It's just someone who will show up day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Isn't that one of the great things about our sport? And and really a lot of sports like this where the requirements are pretty simple. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you you don't have to have a lengthy resume, so to speak. Just will you be there when it counts? And that's something a lot of, you know, doesn't matter how, you know, tall you if you're tall short whatever like fast slow whatever just as long as you'll be there that's what really matters in terms of being a good teammate and being a good running partner right on right on very good strava's takeaway number two consistency is the key to good habits and that's the way they phrased it by the way um Mm -hmm. consistency is the key to good habits the way they said it um now strava has a premium level um called strava summit um, and they're able to gather more data, and and if you have Summit, you have more, um, you have more uh, perks, and you have more. Well, they call them perks. Yeah, you, you have features. You have features. That's and, yeah. the word I was looking for there. Thank you. Uh, more more features available to you on the website. Um, so one of them is goal setting that you can actually set more goals if mm-hmm. you're a Summit user. Um, and so what they found was that 96 percent, so virtually all of the people who use Summit that set a goal in January are still active in July. Um, so actually setting a goal, laying out a goal there and saying, I want to do this. You might not be achieving the goal because that's not what it said, but at least you're still going, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're still going there six months later, six months into the year. Um, I thought it was interesting. They said athletes uploading three activities a week instead of two tend to be more consistent. And by the end of the year, they have more than twice as many activities over the course of the year. Yeah. Right. And so... Three versus two, that's obviously only one and a half more. But but if if you kind of do three, you'll do four a few times, and then maybe five even a few times, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so so there, there's something synergistic about it as well. You know, if you can kind of keep it going, then you'll do even more. Whereas if you're only doing two a week, well, then you'll kind of fade down to one, you know, and, 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 and not tend to do as much. Um, and then third, they said Summit subscribers, uh, so people who use the, the premium features, upload 30% more activities in their first six months. Um in using once they've actually you know gone on and paid for the extra premium um so yeah as soon as you pay as soon as you like you know set the goal and say i'm gonna pay for the pay service they tend to be more consistent in the first six months mm-hmm. um which is not a big surprise i don't think i think that's there's something about human nature um and we've talked about that a great deal with resolutions before that you know people set goals and they, yeah. they really tend to follow up on those goals and early but they, they tend to fade a little bit after six months so what do you think about that uh, it's interesting. Um, they're finding or highlighting uh, another big pillar that we talk about on this podcast all the time, and one of the kind of big pillars of training that we preach you know, with ITL and ITL coaching, and that's that consistency is the key to results, and not mm-hmm. just the key to results, but the key to getting um, what you want out of running and out of endurance sports. Mm-hmm. Um, not only does consistency make you faster, because that really is physiologically what drives your body to change in the most efficient manner mm-hmm. but it also is what kind of helps you create the the good habits that make it easier to go on a run right to get your workout in mm-hmm. um because then it would when it just becomes your modus operandi to go on a run every tuesday thursday sunday for example then you're not having to create new habits like mm-hmm. you you automatically start you know going to bed earlier wednesday night for mm-hmm. example or 
eating a proper dinner Wednesday night, things of that nature. And your and your friends quit asking you to hang out on Wednesday night. Exactly. It's, it's, it's like everybody else in your life kind of gets on board too. Mm-hmm. Like people kind of come to understand that that's sort of what you do and that's your routine and that's who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so yeah, I agree that the, those routines ultimately matter. Um, one, go ahead. And I, and you, I was gonna say you bring up a good point too that there's synergy to like almost mm. the more more workouts you get in almost i should say the easier they become but the less friction there is well, well yeah for each individual one i, I agree and so I, I like the the term that you use just use friction so because you're talking about like friction in terms of your life and making things fit in mm-hmm. your life and the logistics in your life but you know as you've heard me say so many times there's nothing worse than running when you're out of shape and nothing better than running when you're in shape i mean you know you get in better shape you're gonna enjoy it more <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and, it's, and it's and and that, that and that's really true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's true for for cycling. I think it's true for running. I think it's true for swimming. Um, I mean, and and the and the opposite is true as well. Yeah, I I have zero yards of swimming this year. Zero yards of swimming in 2019. Um, and and I have no desire to get back in the pool right now because I know that whatever ability I had for swimming is long gone. Mm-hmm. And and people that I could swim with a few years ago, um, and and that I was comparable with would literally be lapping me in the pool now, mm-hmm. um, and I have no desire to subject myself to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And and but it's the same for it's same for running. Like if 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 once you kind of get out of the habit and you and you gain a lot of weight and you lose a lot of fitness and that sort of thing, like go, getting back into it is really really difficult. Yeah. Um, and that's something we've talked about on this on this podcast in in lots of different ways um, over the course of the past few years. Um, the other thing that it reminds me of is um, some studies on motivation that we cited um, about a year ago that basically said that that um, motiv- like motivational psychologists, people who study motivation, are beginning to think differently about the way that motivation works. And in the past, we've always thought that you have to be motivated and then you do something. And so the tricks around like self-help are, okay, this is how you get yourself excited to go run. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to say, you don't get excited. You don't get excited first. Like you don't focus on that. Just go and run. Yeah. Just go and do it. And then the motivation will actually come later. And so this, uh, the, this, this theoretical approach around you get motivated and then you go run or you get motivated, then you go work out. That's, that's sort of falling by the wayside now. And they're saying that action actually precedes motivation. The motivation is a result of action, not a precursor to action. Yeah. Uh, which I think is interesting too. And so then the mindset is like what what's motivates us isn't so much like the running itself or like the end goal, but it's the feeling of I just conquered this challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's almost the self-satisfaction you get of saying, you know what, that was really hard. Mm-hmm. Did a lot of heavy breathing, a lot of chugging along, but look at what I've gotten out of it. Well, yeah, and, and, and to that point, I, I always actually take more satisfaction from a run or a workout that I complete when I'm not motivated, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know, if 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 I if I'm like God, I really don't want to do this today, and I but I get out there and I do it, I'm actually really really satisfied at the end of that. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so so I think there's just something to be said. You know, the old Nike slogan of "Just do it." I mean, basically, motivational psychology is kind of coming around to that way of thinking that that you don't try and psych yourself up, that you you just put on your shoes and just go, and just don't worry about being motivated. Just 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 put it in gear and go and and once you get out there okay now you're, you're going to be able to derive the the sort of motivation that that you need to keep on going right your drilling kicks in and you yeah. kind of start to yeah. chip away at the uncertainty right on right on 
Number three takeaway from Strava is that indoor and virtual cycling is the next big thing in cycling. Um, and this doesn't come to me as a surprise at all. Um, virtual re- reality cycling adoption by cyclists has nearly tripled since 2016. Um, about 15% of cyclists log virtual rides on trainers or on Zwift or on Trainer Road or on Sufferfest or something like that in January. About 5% in due in July. Okay, so that makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the weather's nice, about a third of the number of people who do it. Um, but and those numbers don't seem huge, only 15 percent and 5 percent. But in 2015, only 0.2 percent of cyclists did indoor rides. And so that's an enormous mm-hmm. amount of growth there that's taken place since 2015. Yeah, um, I can attest to this personally. Um, I quit riding outside in 2015. Um, and we've already talked a great length about why that was, but, but, so you were um, almost perfect for this. Like so, you were a yeah. perfect data oh, point yeah. for this. And, and, and I, I've said on many occasions that, that I was, I was able to stop riding outside in 2015 because between 2010 and 2015, all of these resources came along. Mm-hmm. Um, to support indoor cycling. I mean, you don't have to do anything more than just listen to our interview with Stacey Perlis a couple of months ago from Wahoo. And, and, she was talking about how, you know, you have the direct drive trainer that controls resistance on the bike, obviously. I mean, there, there's tons of those. But then they have something that you can connect the front of your bike to that will then raise and lower the front as if you're going up and down hills. Mm-hmm. They have multiple software platforms that, that can mimic race courses for you and, and different race dynamics for you, all that sort of thing. They even have a fan that Wahoo makes that will blow on you and, and recreate the amount of wind that you'd be feeling on you based on the speed that you're going and so if you're going slowly up a climb you know virtual climb it doesn't blow much wind on you but if you're going fast down the other side of it um, it blows a lot of wind on you i mean you you can you can really in a lot of ways recreate all the physiological benefits of being outside inside now and none of that existed in 2012 right um and so this doesn't surprise me at all and you even get things like Peloton in there, which oh, yeah. aren't as sophisticated necessarily or not as specific to training outside as, mm-hmm. um, you know, what you were just describing with mm-hmm. some of the products Wahoo offers. Mm-hmm. But, like, it is one more kind of reason to stay inside and, and train inside, mm-hmm. right? It, it's one more kind of um, reason to say, you know what, like, even if I don't want to do the highly specific, like, race course, for example, you were, you were describing, mm-hmm. you could stay inside and still you know, compete with other people, for example, or, or mm-hmm. have some social aspect of riding yeah. via Peloton versus mm-hmm. just kind of going to the gym, pedaling away at some random, mm-hmm. you know, cycling machine. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know too, too much about like the, the cycling machines. You can probably offer more insight on this, but I know that when I've done the different erg machines, which is mm-hmm. rowing, mm-hmm. I get a vastly different result based on which erg machine I'm using. Mm. Even if I say it's this, even if I like click and say, all right, I want exactly a 3.0 sure. resistance. Yeah. My times are still wildly different right. based on the different erg machines. Right. Cycling may be this have a similar variance, probably not as much as the erg because erg mm. is water, and so there's it, it doesn't feel quite as uh, systematic. But no, there, there, there's definitely a variance. Um, but and, and that's something you have to be very mindful of if you like go to a spin class. But it's also part of the reason why people like pelotons because your peloton is going to be off by the same amount every single time, and so if it's off, and so therefore it's consistent. And it's the, it's the same thing. So so if you're putting if if you're putting your bike on a Wahoo kicker and it's your Wahoo kicker, it might be a little bit off, but it's gonna be the same amount off every single time. That's exactly my point. Versus yeah. going to like LA Fitness where you've got fifty 
bikes to choose from and right. they could be all yeah and, and there, there could be a, there could be a 10 percent variance inside the class yeah yeah mm-hmm. no for sure for sure um and i i'm actually when it comes to that sort of thing you and i were talking at the outset here about how how data is not always perfect i can be a real weenie about that sort of data i can be really ocd about that kind of data yeah <laughs> um because, because i i want to i want to have it you know, yeah. and I, I've I've purposely let go of some of that over the course of the past year or so because I think it's healthier for me if I do. Um, mm-hmm. But but I can be really OCD about that sort of data. Um, um, what else was I going to say about this? There was something else I was going to say about indoor cycling. Oh, Pelotons, you mentioned those, and I'm glad that you did. Which circles around to the whole community thing that was the very first uh, very first thing that they mentioned there. I mean, um, you know, Peloton that that you can get together in a virtual class. It's literally happening right then. You know, it's not just watching a video and doing what the video tells you, even though they have that too. But it's literally like, okay, 6 a.m. on Tuesday, you have this class and you mm-hmm. join a national class and there's people all over the world that are doing this. I mean, but you're in your house. And so, right. so it's logistically easier and you don't have to put on matching clothes. You know, I mean, so so Peloton, I think it's interesting. So a couple quick things I'll say about that. Number one, um, Peloton um, is interesting because such a wide variety of people actually use pelotons yeah um and it's uh it's there's one of the athletes that i coached this year um was always one of those kind of cycling purists that whenever anybody would post on facebook hey what kind of trainer should i buy what kind of stuff should i do for indoor training he'd always be like go outside he was always like that guy yeah yeah you know? and because and and there, there are folks that are like that. They're like, I hate being on a trainer. Nobody should be riding on a trainer. You know, real cyclists don't ride on trainers. Not, not this guy was that that aggressive, but but he was always one of those sorts. Right. Dude got a Peloton. I could not get him off his Peloton. <laughs> he was, I mean, and, and I, it got to a place where he was literally riding his Peloton every single day. And I had to start like building in all of these. I had to totally change my approach to his training because he couldn't, he wouldn't stop riding his Peloton. He was in love with that machine. And, and this is somebody who had always been real dismissive and derisive of indoor training, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing I'll say about Peloton is there, there truly is something magical about that particular bike and, and, and that particular approach. They have a Peloton treadmill, you know, uh, where you can do the same sort of thing, and, and it hasn't quite caught on the same way. Um, the other thing that I'll say about Peloton, I can't quite remember what I was going to say, and so I guess I'll just leave it for now, um, but, but, but I'll come back to it later. Um, oh, I remember what I was going to say. So on that note, like segueing from that guy, um, keeping in mind that some people would be like, oh, well, you know, the only reason why virtual cycling has gone up is because so many people who spin and stuff like that are put that. Well, actually, 67% of the virtual rides that are uploaded on Strava are uploaded by cyclists. Yep. Um, and, and about 32%, and so 1% are lied by, you know, kind of random other people, but only about 32% are, are, are lied by people who list themselves on Strava as something besides a cyclist. Um, and I would fall into that category, by the way. Um, but but 67% of them are, are people who call themselves cyclists. Um, and so if you think that, oh, well, real cyclists never ride inside, well, not according to the Strava data. Um, similarly, speaking of bike stuff on Strava, uh, bike commuting is up 43% worldwide. That's really good. 31% yep. in the U.S. There's a real breakdown in the U.S. between women who bike commute and men who bike commute. Uh, men bike commute and, and much greater greater numbers than women do. Um, and I think there's a wide variety of reasons that, that we can go into some other time. Um, the fastest growing bike, so when people get new bikes, that's always a big deal. Um, but um, the fastest growing bike is the Trek Checkpoint bike, um, mm-hmm. which is a gravel bike. Um, and it was 
Trek's first big entry into mainstream gravel bikes. Um, and so it makes sense that, that since gravel bikes, gravel cycling has grown so much over the course of the past few years, uh, the, the Trek, you know, the primary American brand, yeah. um, their gravel bike is the fastest growing bike on Strava. Um, the fastest bike on Strava. Does that make sense? Okay, so the Vaporfly of bikes. If yeah, you will. yeah, if you will. And we're going to get to Vaporflies here in just a minute. But, uh, but, but if you look at all the rides that are done by uh, Kestrel Talons and all the rides that are done by uh, uh, Trek Madones, and you look at all the rides that are done by you know um, Scott CR1s, whatever it is, um, the fastest bike is the Canyon Speedmax, um, which is Canyon's, the bike manufacturer Canyon. It's their, uh, their, their uh, time trial bike or their... their, their uh, triathlon bike, uh, 17.9 miles per hour. So if you take every single ride done on a Canyon Speedmax, um, it was they, they all averaged 17 point miles per hour for every single ride that was done, um, which is actually pretty high. <laughs> yeah, does that average include like stopping at stoplights? So um, which zero pro- really brings pro- down your probably? Average. I would bet it doesn't. Okay. Probably not, like, but it does include like training rides um, and group rides and races and all that sort of thing. Seventeen point nine is is very high. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, the longest rides uh, belong to the Colnago C sixty four. The average ride on a Colnago C sixty four, the uh, classic Italian bike, is thirty point six miles, which is not a short bike ride. Um, I mean, in fact, if you put it together, like just short of a fifty k. So yeah, Jeez. I mean, in, in fact, if you put it together, if you say okay, seventeen point nine miles per hour on the Canyon Speedmax, so let's just round it to 18, 18 miles an hour, thirty point six miles on the Colnago C four. If you were to do thirty point six miles or thirty miles in in at eighteen miles per hour, what that's that's an hour and 40 minutes yeah so so you're talking about close to a two-hour ride or about a two-hour ride is the average ride on the colnago c64 um so that's that's not a short ride Mm -hmm. yeah um so i want to back up to one point you had earlier about how the gravel bike is the most popular bike this Mm -hmm. year fastest growing bike fastest growing bike Mm -hmm. thank you um Mm -hmm. thanks for correcting me there Mm -hmm. um why do you think that the gravel ride has become more popular this year, and it, it, not just this year, but just in general. I mean, we started offering a gravel ride here with ITL because mm-hmm. we saw that that was something people yeah, were, mm-hmm. were wanting, and, and a lot of people really responded very positively to that. Mm-hmm. So, um, why do you think that's grown so much, you know, in, in popularity? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I, I, and and by all means, folks, drop us a line and tell us what you think. I I would offer two suggestions. One is I think that cycling, as we were just talking about. Like the typical ride in, on a bike is 90 minutes. Okay. And if you think think about if every run you did was 90 minutes long at least, mm-hmm. and then your longer runs were were four to five hours long, it's just a lot of time. Right. Cycling takes so long. You know the the, the famous quotation and from then, Eddie Merckx: "Ride lots." I mean that's the secret to cycling, right. um, and that's still the secret to cycling. And then you add on to that, most of my runs or a lot of people's runs are you start at your front door. Right. But riding, you have to usually drive somewhere like a cartersville which is absolutely you know an hour outside of atlanta right right exactly exactly and so so and this is also why but by the way i would say this is also why indoor cycling has grown so much as well um but so 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 you consider how much time goes into that ultimately that becomes pretty monotonous and you want something to break it up Mm-hmm. And so, so I think that that gravel riding, yeah, you're still going outside and you're riding, but but you're on different surfaces, you're you're going up and down hills, you you have different kinds of challenges. It's still the same kind of thing, but it's not total. But 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 
it, it's different enough that it feels different and it'll kind of freshen things up. Mm-hmm. It's not like having to learn a whole new sport like like mountain biking is. Right. <laughs> um, that that um, it's enough like road cycling that a road cyclist can get a gravel bike, they can ride off road, and they can enjoy themselves and get a good workout. And it can it can be more mentally refreshing rather than just sort of buckling in for another rough, long winter in the saddle. Which cycling in the winter is tough. Yeah, um, it's a lot of time and it's cold and the wind blows on you and it's just it's rough. Um, and the speeds are lower too, and so it's not you know the cold weather doesn't hurt you as much. Um, you know stuff like that. So that's one thing is I think it breaks the monotony for you. Two, um, gravel cycling, as you would imagine, um, as the name suggests, is on you know mostly gravel roads and paths and that sort of thing. And those places are characterized by their lack of cars. Cars. Um, and I think that that I'm not the only person who is spooked by cars these days. Mm-hmm. Um, that that more and more people are are being increasingly cautious around cars. Um, there are more cars on the road, and there are more smartphones in the hands of people driving those cars. Um, and so people are feeling less safe on the roads, and they want to to go to a place where there are fewer cars. And again, without having to learn a whole new sport, right? You, you know, because mountain biking truly is learning a whole new sport. Um, you know, without having to buy a whole new sport, you can you can get out on a gravel ride, and and it just kind of feels like you're riding your road bike on a slightly slicker surface. Right. You know, um, and so I totally get that. That's the two reasons I would offer. One, because it breaks up the monotony in a way that's um, still worthwhile, and and number two, because it it uh, is safer. Um, Makes right. sense. Yeah. And kind of as you said, it plays into the theme of people just needing you know to devote. You know, less and less, I shouldn't say less and less time, but to almost make better use of their time. Sure. Right. If I have three hours to work out, I don't want to spend an hour commuting there and back. Yeah. yeah. Um, for example. Yeah. All right. So, last thing we'll say about cycling the fat, the, the most popular computers, uh, bike computers, Garmin Edge 530 is the most popular computer on Strava. Garmin Edge 830 is the second most popular computer. The Wahoo Element Rome is the third most popular computer on, on Ooh, bike computers. Ooh, congrats to Wahoo. So, yeah, right on. Wahoo, man. I mean, we, we talked to Stacy Perlis uh, right after they had just bought Sufferfest. A week or two after that, they bought Speedplay, which is a pedal manufacturer, which is one of the pedal manufacturing giants in the world. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, yeah, Wahoo is. I mean, we, we we take pride in the fact that they're you know a local company, you know, and they ain't a local company. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, that'd be like taking pride in the fact that Coca Cola is a local company here in Atlanta. I mean, yeah, yeah the little and, engine that could. Yeah. yeah, I do take pride in that, but <laughs> well, it's a little bit like how if you go to Boston, like Dunkin' Donuts is still like their <laughs> local chain, so right, to speak. Right. So I mean, it's it's um, yeah, it's it's Wahoo is 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 a a worldwide power these days, uh, and so kudos to them. Um, all right, final takeaway from uh, from from Strava uh, when they looked at their own data here. Um, and this is, again, their wording. They said, 2020 marathoners might want to check out the Nike Next Percent. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and they said... Um, Another theme of this podcast. Right, yeah, I know. And so they said, among runners of the six marathon majors who logged their running shoes on Strava, those who wore the Nike Next Percent finished the races fastest, closely followed by the Nike Zoom Vaporfly. Um, and so, I mean, that's... It's basically the same shoe, the the next percent, the four percent, um, and then, um, so they, you know, those are the fastest one. Now, we should add a couple of things to this. 
Um, the New York Times, you remember last summer, the summer of 2018, the New York Times actually looked at a whole bunch of Strava data, and they said, wow, the Nike vapor flies really do make a difference. Um, and the the New York Times actually doing this this study with Strava data, even though it was kind of nonspecific, was one of the things that, that convinced me to first try the vapor flies in the first place. Um, well, the New York Times actually took all the new data from Strava when they where they released it here, um, and they added it to all the old data they crunched before, um, and so now their data that the New York Times has compiled includes race results from about 577,000 marathons and 496,000 half marathons in dozens of countries from April of 2014 to December of 2019, and so. A massive amount of races here the New York Times has compiled. Could you imagine hearing that sentence or sentences you just said back in 2009? Like yeah, to no. get back to our, how much running and endurance yeah. athletics yeah. has changed in the past decade. Yeah. That yeah. is a data set we just did not have. Yeah. It used to be, all right, recruit 20 undergrads, have right. them jog for four weeks, and let's see how that improves their endurance. Well, and, and, that's what, and that's what they initially did with the, with the Vaporfly 4%. You remember? They, they did that at the University of Colorado, and they found the 4% change, and, and mm-hmm. that was interesting, I thought. But then but then, Stra- then New York Times goes and shows all this stuff with Strava data, and for some reason, that just felt, even though it was less scientific, that felt more impactful and more interesting. And, and ultimately, it was one of the things that convinced me to give them a try myself for the first time in the fall of 2018 at the Philadelphia Marathon. So um, anyway, the New York Times found that the effect, the the 4% effect has continued to show itself. Um, they found there's no real difference between the Vaporfly and the next percent, which I thought was interesting. Okay. So, they, so they just ended up kind of lumping them together when they, they talked about them in their in their conclusions. Um, but the two shoes reliably rendered times 2 to 3% faster than the next fastest shoe, even when you control for faster courses, more training, age, all that sort of thing. Um, in 2019, um, the percentage of sub three-hour marathons in the first three months of 2019, 21% of three-hour marathons that were logged on Strava were wearing vapor flies, either next percent or four percent. In quarter two, it was 27%. In quarter three, it was 39%. Uh, in the last three months of the year, and there's still a few more days here left, the last three months of the year, 41% of the sub-three marathons that were recorded on Strava were by people wearing Vaporfly 4% or next percents. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> and I, got, I have some other kind of... And that's close to half. I mean, that's that's a lot. Jeez. So I have some kind of similar data here. Um, so among the Strava-using participants at the Boston Marathon, mm-hmm. which kind of takes gender into effect into account a bit more than just the straight up sub three hour marathon because mm-hmm. it's looking at you know right, right. Um, performance based on age and gender so mm-hmm. to speak mm-hmm. um the vast majority opted for nike models in general mm-hmm. uh, the nike zoom vaporfly was the most worn shoe followed by nike pegasus mm-hmm. hoka one one clifton nike zoom fly which is tr- they at least try to emulate the vaporfly mm-hmm. and make it vaporfly light mm-hmm. and the Sakoni kinvara Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is also racing flat. You said yep. the, the Clifton, the Hoka Oneone Clifton? Yep. See, that's interesting. That was cause, third. Because that's not a racing gear. We're going to talk more about, about Hoka's here in just a second. But that's, I mean, that's a lightweight trainer, I guess, uh, in the Hoka line. But, but, but yeah. Um, the, the New York Times said that, that they, they tended to look at people who switched shoes. That's mm-hmm. like their favorite thing to do. And that, that was the big thing they did last year. And that's what they continued to do when they, they added all the new data. Um, and they found that, that if you switch shoes, you are 73% likely to PR. 
Just switch shoes, period. You switch shoes to the vapor flies. Oh, to the vapor flies. Yeah. If you switch shoes to the vapor fly, 73% of chance of a PR. Now, mind you, one thing that they didn't mention, but I picked up from, from some of the other things they said, they consider something to be a PR if it's the fastest marathon you've ever run on Strava. Does that make sense? That's a good point. And yeah. so, so if somebody PR'd, you know, in 2000 before they had Strava, um, and then they run their fastest time since they became a Strava user in 2015, they actually consider that a PR. One way or another, you'd still be going faster than you had been going for the past four years, right? But, but, but still, that's what they considered PR. And they said that you're 73% likely to run your fastest time for a marathon ever on Strava if you switch from whatever shoes you were using to the Vaporfly 4% or the Vaporfly next percent. Um, now, interestingly, that, that's almost like the guy just showing up to the basketball court and being like, "I don't care who shows up, I got this." <laughs> like, think about that though. It, they didn't even have to specify. They're like, there wasn't even like a rock paper scissors notion going on. Where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's better than this, but mm-hmm. not better than this. But this one's mm-hmm. better than this. Mm-hmm. Sometimes on flat was, or hill, it was far and away it was better. Just straight up better than and, and, it, and it all was of them. and it was better and they like they, Tiger Woods versus the field. Yeah, they disaggregated their data for men for women for so-called fast runners, so-called slow runners, across mm-hmm. all sorts of various things, and all sorts of different conditions. Um, and for every single group, it was faster. And so that 73% is actually an aggregate of everything, of every group and every situation. Yeah. Like So so there were some some people, uh, some subgroups, that if they switched to the Vaporfly, they were even more likely than that to PR. That's a 73% just average Yeah. likely to PR. And think about that. How many people just didn't PR because they switched and like they just didn't have a great training gear or didn't have a great race? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's got to be at least one out of five. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so they also graphed out. Um, they graphed out how much people's times changed when they did switch to certain shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Vaporfly, like I said, was fastest by a lot. Um, and but I, I thought it was interesting looking at. Okay, so if somebody switched to the uh, Brooks Pure Flow. How much did their time change, or how did their time change? And so they did that for about fifty different models of shoes. Okay. Um, and they found that that obviously, if you switch to the Vaporfly, that's how your time improved the most. The Nike Streak was actually the second fastest shoe for people who switched to it, which was interesting. The Newton Distance was third, um, and the Adidas Adi Zero Adios was fourth. That makes um, sense. But in addition, several shoes also made you slower. Okay, yeah, let's get into that. And so so several shoes made you slower. The Ultra Torin made you slower. The Mizuno Wave Inspire made you slower. And the shoe that made you the most slower, if that makes sense, the shoe that slowed you down the most was the Hoka One One Bondi. Now, we should mention the Ultra Torin, the Mizuno Wave Inspire, the Hoka One One Bondi, and lots of other ones, by the way. I just picked out those because they're kind of marquee names. Um, none of those are racing flats. Yeah. And so somebody could have been switching from the Vaporfly to the Hoko One One Bondi. And right. yeah, of course they slowed down. Um, but but I thought that was interesting too. That there are there are certain there was a lot of shoes on there in the New York Times showed that actually slowed you down as well. Um, so all that said, um, all that said, it's not actually the fastest growing shoe on Strava. Um, the fastest growing shoe on Strava, the people that, that are adopting more on Strava than anything else, is the Hoka One One Carbon X, which I thought was interesting. So that's the one that's seen the most growth. So, so that those are yeah. the 
those are the salespeople that have made the most leeway, so yes. to speak. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so the Vaporfly is the fastest shoe on Strava, um, and and um, but it's not the fastest growing shoe on Strava. More people aren't adopting the Vaporfly than anything else. Now, folks will hear this podcast, you know, and they'll they'll read the Strava blog post, and they'll be like, oh well, forget the the Carbon X I was planning to buy. I'm gonna go out and buy Vaporfly instead. We'll see. Um, but, but I don't know. Um, but I think it is worth looking at too. I mean, um, by all means, check out the New York times for your, for yourself too. Um, because you can find there was every brand essentially was inside those 50 different shoes that they looked at. And like, there were some shoes that were faster inside certain brands than, than other shoes inside those brands. And so if you have a lot of brand loyalty, or if you don't want to wear Nikes, for example, which I appreciate, which is where I am right now, as we all know, um, but if you don't want to wear Nikes, then you can look and see, okay, I want to wear Mizunos. I like Mizunos. What is the fastest Mizuno shoe? You can actually see that in that New York Times article as well, which is pretty interesting too. Um, anyway, second well, fastest growing shoe was the Adidas Solar Glide. The third fastest was my favorite shoe of the year, the New Balance Fresh Foam Beacon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else were you about to say? Uh, I was going to say, now that you've teased us like with the fastest uh, like shoes of each brand, since this is Atlanta and Mizu- kind of a big Mizuno city, um, what was the fastest Mizuno shoe? Let's see. The fastest Mizuno shoe. You talk about something else real quick, and I'll look it up. Sure. So my first thought when you talked about the difference between the fastest growing and the fastest shoe, fastest growing being Hoka 1, 1 Carbon X, and fastest racing shoe being Nike Zoom Vaporfly. Mm-hmm. That to me, the, the the obvious difference was the difference in price. Like it's roughly like what yeah. a seventy dollar difference. Yeah, it's about um, that. Yeah, maybe eighty. Seventy hundred dollars. Um, yeah. Between the Vaporfly four percent and the Hoka one one carbon, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people are doing the basic math of like, well, if I pay you know one twenty or so for a normal pair of shoes, one seventy for my Hoka one one carbon, which is faster than my training shoe, but also not quite, you know, double the price of a normal shoe. It almost falls a bit more in range than, like I said, almost saying, all right, I'm going to pay twice as much for a shoe mm-hmm. that we also know is not going to last 100 miles. Right. Um, so then for a marathon, you probably don't have more than three right. of those in each right. shoe. And you have to consider, I mean, and we, we've talked about the Vaporfly at, at great length, and we've talked about the risks with them. We've talked about the costs, the benefits, um, you know, the, the, the social costs of it, the, the political costs of it, which is something that I'm wrestling with right now personally. Um, and so, yeah. so, I mean, when it comes to shoes, and I think this, this has become more true for me as I've gotten older, whenever you come to shoes, you're always, we- you're always weighing costs and benefits. Mm-hmm. And, and the straight-up time is just one of the benefits. Right. Um, and, and, it, and it's something that you have to kind of, make sure that you consider in its overall context. So if I look at all the shoes they mentioned here, all right, so shoes that make you faster in the order that they make you faster by, okay? So like we said, this is people switching from some other shoe, any other shoe, to the shoe that I'm about to name. The ones that make you faster in this order are Nike Vaporfly or Next Percent, Nike Streak, Newton Distance, Adidas Adi Zero Adios, Nike Zoom Fly, Hoka One One uh, uh, Carbon X, um, Mizuno Wave Sayonara. Oh, okay. So, so, so that's actually fairly high on the list. Uh, and you asked specifically about Mizuno. Um, that got you about 
So people who switched from something else from Mizuno Wave Sayonara ran 1.5% faster than they had in whatever their old shoe was. Saucony Freedom, Adidas Audi Zero Boston, the On Cloudflow, the New Balance 1400, the Asics DS Trainer, New Balance 1500, Ultra Escalante, New Balance uh, Zante, Nike Pegasus, New Balance 860, Adidas Boost and of any sort, uh, Saucony Canvara, Books Ravenna, Saucony Triumph, Asics Nusa, and a Brooks Ghost got you like 0.1% faster, all right? And then everything after that actually made you a little bit slower. Okay. Um, so ones that made you slower, Adidas Ultra Boost, Asics, which is an expensive shoe. Hmm, yeah. um, Asics Dynaflight, Mizuno Wave Rider made you a little bit slower according to the data the New York Times compiled from the, the uh, Strava data. Um, Brooks Launch, Asics Nimbus, Nike Free, Nike Lunar Glide, Asics Cumulus, Ultra Torin, Saucony Guide, New Balance 880, Adidas Energy Boost, Hoka One One Clifton, yeah, which actually made you slower. Um, and that was Asics, one of the most worn that, shoes at the Boston Marathon right, this year. Yeah, so which goes to show that whole thing that I was talking about, about cost and benefits, right? Yeah. Um, uh, because if you think about it too, like, I mean, this is so theoretical and not probably a little off track, but if someone came to you and said, "Hey, we're gonna make, we're gonna drop a minute off your marathon PR, your next marathon," mm-hmm. and but you're not gonna be able to run for the three months afterwards because your knees are gonna be shot, mm-hmm. would you take that deal? Yeah, no. Exactly. I mean, I, and once again, that was an exaggerated example. You obviously don't know that for a fact, mm-hmm. but that mm-hmm. just kind of highlights. Yeah. But if you but if you feel some, there's, but if you feel there's a legitimate risk of that. Yeah. yeah. Asics GT Series, Brooks Glycerin, Brooks Adrenaline, Nike Structure, Saucony Glide, Mizuno Wave Inspire, pretty close to the bottom, Brooks Pure Flow, New Balance 1080, which I just bought a new pair of, and did my first run in them yesterday, mm-hmm. <laughs> won't be racing in them, um, Asics Kiana, Nike Vomero is super close to the bottom, Adidas Supernova, uh, Saucony Omni, and like we said before, the Hoka One One Bondi. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, um, all shoes that slowed you down anywhere from just over um, just over zero percent to about two percent. They slowed you down a little bit if you switched to them, um, according to the data gathered by the New York Times via Strava. So, um, all right, man, we've been talking a lot about all of this. Um, let's talk about a couple other qu- quick interesting tidbits. Japan does more marathons or ultras per capita than anywhere else. Twenty four percent of runners in Japan have done a marathon. Um, France is a distant sex, uh, second at 10.4%, and the U.S. is third at a mere 7.6%. Um, think about all the people we know that do marathons. 70, 7, only 7.6 of runners, 6% of runners in the United States do marathons or ultra marathons. 24% of runners. Not just that, but 7% of people that upload runs on Strava. Right. So, I mean, it's probably even smaller because there's probably more yeah, runners that, that don't upload to Strava and don't do marathons right. as opposed to people who don't upload it to Strava and do do marathons. Excellent point. Excellent point. Yeah, but Japan, one out of four people who upload to Strava have done a marathon or ultra marathon. Well, Japan is just a different culture. I mean, it, it's kind of fascinating. Um, they they almost view long-distance running the same way we would like basketball. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of their big three or four sports along with baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way where, like, the elite runners are household names. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you've actually done some, we both have done some reading this year, um, so about yeah, that yeah. very culture. Yeah. The book, the way of the runner by Adharan, Adharanan Finn, uh, he's a British guy who, uh, who went over there and wanted to learn a little bit more about Ekaden culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I finished the book fairly recently and it's super interesting. And actually one of the questions he asked at one point during it is he's like, for as crazy as they are about running and as much as they, as much as they run, why is Japan not actually faster? 
Um, they're the third fastest marathoning country in the world behind Ethiopia and Kenya. And he's like, why aren't they actually faster? He kind of comes to about halfway through the book, which I think is super interesting. Um, and one of the reasons that he, he, he posits is that they, uh, they put too much emphasis on Ekadens, their relays. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, but, but a lot of folks do marathons there. Um, 51, go ahead. Sorry. What's fascinating about that too, and, and you've pointed this out in the conversations off, you know, air, they're, the number of people that they have, the number of men that they have running between 220 and 230, yeah. or even 235, is outrageous. Yeah. So you're doing the Tokyo Marathon, what, March right. 1st? March 1st. Here, you know, in mm-hmm. um, a few months. Mm-hmm. If you run the same time there right. that you did in Philadelphia or New York, right. talk a little bit about how what yeah. how different your place will be. Yeah, so, so, my, so it's interesting. My place and my age group will be about the same. Okay. Um, but but what I've said is that if I run about the same thing that I ran in New York, and so I've had I've had a few good marathons over the course of the past few years. I ran two thirty six in New York. I ran two thirty seven in Philadelphia. I ran two thirty six at Flying Pig. The two thirty six in New York got me seventy sixth place in a fifty thousand person marathon. Right. Um, the two thirty seven oh five in in Philadelphia got me forty eighth place. The 236.15 at Flying Pig got me fifth place overall, right? Um, if I run right about that, right about 236, which is what I'd like to do. And to kind of recap, we'll, we'll say that you would then be 75th in the biggest, you know, national marathon in New York City. Sure. So we'll kind of, we'll focus on that one, for yeah, example. Yeah, Just to kind of make it easy. So, 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 to, so, so with that in mind, if I run right about 236 again, which is going to be my goal, um, mm-hmm. if I run right about that same time... I'll finish around 350th. Big, big difference. <laughs> Based on and historical that's four results. four times the number of people yeah, in front of you, yeah. roughly. Um, I'll still finish the same place in my age group, with the exception of, like, not I, I won my age group at Flying Pig, but, but, and I was second in my age group at Philadelphia, but I'll be about the same place in my age group that I was at New York, around fifth or sixth in my age group. And so it's not like there's people of all ages that are, that are running really fast, but there's just a lot of people in their 20s and 30s who are running between 220 and 230 in Japan. Yep, and and something happens there, and they kind of stop running all that much mm-hmm. um, by the time they get into their forties. Um, and so, so yeah, I think it'll be uh, I think it'll be interesting. Uh, if nothing else, I mean, assuming that I that I run well, I'm gonna be running in a much larger crowd than I'm accustomed to running. Into. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and and that'll be cool. I'm excited about that. Um, all right. 51% of ultra runners have never uploaded a marathon on Strava, <laughs> which I think is, I just thought that was funny. They're not sellouts, man. So, <laughs> evidently not. Um, since 2015, there's been a 10% drop in users logging just one sport. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So people are cross-training more. Um, it kind of goes along with something that, that hit the news about six months ago that said that marathoners who improved their PRs this year, it... Uh, on Strava had increased their non-running activity by 13%. The New York Times had a headline to the effect of, do you want to run faster? Run less or something like that. And it wasn't necessarily that you should be running less. It's that you should be doing other things more. Um, Yoga, weightlifting, cycling, um, that sort of thing. Um, And so, so yeah, 10% drop in users logging just one sport. Like cross-training is is becoming more and more um, mainstream. So, um, yeah, running is the gateway drug. Or maybe not even running, <laughs> but, like, whether you started out in cycling or running, you almost have that, you know, mm-hmm. to use that colloquial term, like, gateway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you say, oh, this is a lot of fun. Well, mm-hmm. 
instead of running seven days a week, I'll do I'll continue to run four days a week, but then add in cycle or swim or yeah. something of that or nature. CrossFit or Orange Theory or yep. something else like that, um, which I, all of which I think is super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, last thing, uh, last thing we'll say: How many people do you know wear a Polar Vantage M watch? Oh gosh, I have no idea. I'm gonna say zero just because I can't. I, I was gonna say uh, zero. Yeah. Um, that is the most widely used running watch on Strava. I did see that. Uh, and I know nobody who uses one, um, which tells me I need to get outside of my own little bubble. Um, by all means, folks, write us and let us know if you use a Polar Vantage M and, and how much you love it because it's the most popular watch on, on Strava for runners. The Garmin 4Runner 945 was second. The Garmin Instinct was third. Um, both you and I were, use a Garmin 920, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is a multi-sport watch, which uh, was not in the top five either for cyclists or for uh, for runners, but uh, maybe it is for multi-sport athletes, so alas. So there you have it, the year in review according to Strava as interpreted by George and Patrick. Final words, Patrick? Uh, it's always fun. Like, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, now that we have this um, kind of connected society where we all have smartphones and all these kind of different platforms. It's always fun to get like the Spotify most listened to songs <laughs> or, you know, your, your Strava year in review. It, it's pretty fascinating to see, um, to, to learn as much as we can based on data that we have from these platforms that we just didn't have before, before yeah. we were kind of a, a platform driven society. I shouldn't yeah. even say platform driven because there's just so few of them out there. Um, but it, it, it's fascinating. And it's also fascinating how much I think Strava really helps other runners continue to push forward Mm -hmm. like it's 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 the weird thing where for whatever reason if facebook causes fomo strava causes you to say well if everyone else is doing it Mm -hmm. so i should too Mm -hmm. in in a way that i think is positive positive fomo yeah positive (laughs) fomo where you don't feel like you're missing out but you you also don't feel it's like as much of an oddball when you're kind of um you see how many people are out there running and putting in the miles or, or cycling on the weekends or the early mornings. Right on, right on. Very good, very good. Well, Patrick, happy new year to you. We look forward to seeing you a little bit more of you here in 2020. Absolutely, and happy not quite into the decade, apparently. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. That'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and SlayRx. Don't forget to reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast. We're on Instagram now, at mostpleasantexhaustion. And you can download us on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. ITL Coaching and Performance can be found at itlcoaching.com at ITL Coaching on Twitter, Facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance, and on Instagram, ITL Coaching. Blue Pineapple Travel can be found at BluePineappleTravel.com, at Facebook.com slash BluePineappleTravel, or on Instagram, BluePineappleTravel. And SlayRx can be found at SlayRx.com, at Facebook.com slash HereForSlayRx, that's the number four, HereForSlayRx, on Twitter, at OfficialSlayRx, and on Instagram, HereForSlayRx. Don't forget to use the Pleasant 2019 discount code for 10% off anything at their website. On behalf of Michelle Frank and Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We appreciate your listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.